Hello, and welcome to IPO Stories, a podcast that explores the tracks to IPOs for companies and their stakeholders. Through interviews with professionals who have led companies to public markets, we will learn about what it takes to IPO a business, the do's and the don'ts before, during, and after the listing process. I'm Gauthier. I'm Pear, co-founders of Amundsen Investment Management, a Europe-based equity manager. When you become listed, index inclusion is a big deal. Beyond the stamp of approval to your listing, it brings in new passive investors, more liquidity, and ultimately more stability as a listed company. Yet, index inclusion rules are very technical and not always easy to understand. To open up the topic of equity indices, we have invited Mark Makepeace, the CEO of Wallstro Indexes. Mark built up and managed FTSE Russell, from a small group that produced the UK equity benchmark, FTSE 100, to one of the top three global equity index providers. With Mark, we discussed what criteria index providers use to include companies, how this relates to the offer size and market capitalization of an IPO, how index rules have evolved to adapt to the market, and the evolution of index providers to also become ESG data providers. Before we start, we would like to remind our listeners that our discussion is not financial advice, nor an investment recommendation, nor a solicitation to buy or sell any financial instruments, or an offer for financial services or any other transaction. The information contained in the recording has no contractual value and are destined for an informational purpose only. Amundsen Investment Management and the participants in this podcast may have holdings in the companies being discussed. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. Can you start by introducing yourself and a bit how you came to work with equity indices? It's a pleasure to be here. I started in the, uh, in the city in London working on Big Bang. And after Big Bang, which I helped to coordinate, really, I was left looking for something to do. The Big Bang, just for the listeners who don't know what it is? Big Bang is, um, was the deregulation of the City of London. It happened in 1986, and really it led to the trading floor being replaced by technology and screens so that um, all the big investors could trade from their desks. So it had a huge impact on the city. But after I helped coordinate Big Bang, uh, I was looking around then for something to do. And uh, I was uh, shown the sort of FTSE 100. And I was asked to then develop an index business from there. So I became almost self-appointed sort of uh, head of indices. And and in doing so, I sort of learned the business. I uh, developed a, a very good relationship with the Financial Times. And together with the Financial Times, the London Stock Exchange then set up FTSE, the company. And I was the founder of that and uh, ran that as its chief executive, growing that to become quite a big and successful company. The Stock Exchange bought out the Financial Times, so I went back to being uh, part of the Stock Exchange, and I, I, as well as running FTSE and FTSE Russell, I also then ran all of their information services. Until I retired, but um, retirement wasn't for me. So I've come back into the industry and now I'm the chief executive and I run Wilshire Indices. So it's a bit like going back in time and a group from FTSE joined me. So we're now trying to generate indices for the markets globally, but to do so in a very more modern way, modern technology, cloud-based thinking about how computerization will change the industry. 
And so FTSE 100, when you started, that was a basically UK large cap equity index, right? And that was the only product that FTSE had at the time. That's all they had. And, and the first thing I did was I, I introduced a mid-cap index. And then because the euro was being introduced, we tried to introduce a, a European ex-UK index to compete. But competing outside of the eurozone was difficult. So we, we grew, but really it was the collaboration with the Financial Times and the Institute of Actuaries, for those who know the UK market, that really helped then launch indexation, not just in the UK, but then have a big influence in terms of global markets because FTSE Russell, along with MSCI and S&P, became one of the three big index providers. So um, we create some of that success at uh, Wilshire Indices. So what's the objective of an equity index for those who don't know what it's used for? These indices are very important. One of the primary purposes is that of a benchmark, and that's a benchmark for both active and passive funds. What the the broad-based indices are trying to do, they're trying to capture the what we would describe the investable opportunity set. So for an investor, if they're looking at either a single market or global markets, what the index provider is trying to do when they create that broad index is create an index which really then captures all of the companies that will be investable for those institutional investors. So even if a fund has basically 50 investments, you want to measure the performance of all of the equities that that fund could actually be invested in. That's right. Because then you're being used as um, it's a performance benchmark. So in other words, the decisions the investment manager is making, are they good decisions? And also then the indices are used for the analysis of the market. So the index providers classify companies by their industry. You think of the industry sectors is a company, a technology company or what type of technology company. Um, They classify them by size, large cap, mid cap, small cap. They also classify them in what we would describe in the investment world as factors. You think of growth or value. So growth being are they fast growing potential companies and value differently to companies which are sort of value, so higher income generating companies. Now, that provides very important basis for investment decisions. But for companies, the indices are their shop window and how they get represented in that shop window becomes very important. So for a company, if the index provider determines your industry sector, It's important that you understand that because it will shape the way investors will, what type of investors will become shareholders and which type of investors you may be successful in attracting as shareholders. If you're not in the index, you you don't exist for a lot of people, right? That's right, because you're a higher risk. Because these indices, what they're trying to do is capture broad characteristics in terms of risk and performance. So you would expect different performance from growth companies to value companies. You would expect different risk characteristics for a small cap company compared to a mid cap or large cap company. 
So it's a, it's a way of investors' starting point from which they will be assessing or putting companies into boxes which they can then do further analysis. So it's important that you're in the right box. If you believe you're a fast-growing company and you're classified as a value stock, then something is wrong or either your view is wrong or the view of the index provider is wrong. So I think it's very important to engage with the index providers to understand their decisions and to think about the implications for you, the company, because it does have significant implications. And beyond the active fund managers using index to to benchmark their performance, uh, I've seen a huge growth of the passive investment industry. Can you explain a bit more what's going on there? When it comes to investment, costs matter, and particularly over the long term. And the passive investors are are simply, they're holding all of the companies in the index at the weight of that index. So in other words, they're, they're holding the whole market in simple terms. But what they provide investment is a lower cost approach. And they're not trying to make judgments about companies, and they're not trying to outperform the market. They're just trying to match the market's performance. What active managers are doing is they're not holding all the companies. The active managers are being very selective and increasingly holding a small number of stocks. So a stock market may have a a, a thousand stocks listed. The passive manager will hold the vast majority of them, but an active manager may only hold 50. Uh, And passive investment has been growing because it's cheaper than the active management. And it's simply a function of the costs involved. If you think of an active manager who's trying to outperform, then they have to do a lot of analysis and a lot of work to try and identify those companies that can outperform their industry, their sector, the market. Um, Whereas passive manager doesn't have to do that. They're just managing money to the index. And you can also think of it a bit as technological innovation, right? Because if you look at back in the 90s, I think it was quite difficult for a fund to hold the 7,000 companies that are in a global all-cap index today versus today it's quite easy or at least manageable. It's manageable. And technology is helping these passive managers, not just now in terms of holding that group of stocks, but then the indices have developed further because they are a lower cost. Now, the index providers replicate a whole range of investment strategies, whether that strategy is one of growth that I've talked about or momentum or it's a particular theme. And then the passive managers can just hold those stocks and, again, offer a lower cost fund. So as indices are becoming more widely used and in many ways challenging or replacing active managers because they are cheaper, then again, it just makes it even more important for the companies to understand how the index providers classify those companies. And it's not just how they're classified, but why. And that then helps the company. Because for the company, they're that the indices are that shop window. And being a shop window, it also gives you an opportunity to see who your peers are. Because if you're in a particular industry sector, then really you're being compared by investors with that sector, with that characterization that the index provider has put on you. 
Do you have an estimate now of what share of listed companies are actually owned by passive funds today? Because it's become quite large, especially in the US. It has. And and best estimates are that it's in excess of 20% of uh, holdings are held by passive funds. But on top of that, active managers who are following these indices because that's their performance benchmark, when you add those as well that influence by indices, then that increases to probably almost half the weight of companies is influenced in some shape or form by the indices themselves. Yeah, because a lot of active managers actually have criteria uh, such as I can invest in a company if it's actually already in the index and I can overweight or underweight it, but it has to be in the index before I make a decision. That's right. Many of the pension funds will set criteria for their fund managers which say, if you're taking risks by either underweighting or overweighting a company relative to the index, which is their definition of the stock market, then they need special permission. So it means that active managers, many of them, if they're not being very selective, will closely follow the index. So again, that's why I say for companies, really, almost half of your shareholders will be influenced in some shape or form by the way the index providers define you and treat you. And do you think this is going to continue to grow? Because it seems like there might be some limit to how much of the market can actually be passive or index following in a way. What do you think? Yeah, I think passive has still got a long way to grow. The cost arguments are very clear, right? That's, um... The cost arguments are so clear, and that's the driver of passive. It is simply that these reduced costs add up over time, and it's quite significant. But you do need contrarian views. You do need active investors. So we will not, I think, ever have a situation where the whole market is passive. So you, you do need this active market where there's a combination of passive and active investors with people taking a view on individual companies, on individual sectors, and broadly on, on markets, whether that's the UK market, the Chinese market, the US market. So I think all of these factors play in. But I think where passive levels are today, we've got a long time ahead of us for, for these funds to continue growing. Absolutely. I agree with that. Now, I wanted to come to the relationship between index inclusion and the IPO. You said that index inclusion does say something about the riskiness of a company or the acceptance of a company by the market. What's the general view within the sort of index provider world of newly listed companies? Is it, is it okay for them to include them soon or, or do they need some time to validate themselves before they're included in the index? It's a matter of how material these uh, the companies are. So if we think of a small cap company, very often small cap indices or small companies, the indices are rebalanced on an annual basis. So un- unless the company is larger, is either a mid cap or large company, or it will often get included in the indices on a, a quarterly review. If you have an exceptionally large company, then it can go into the indices on the day it is IPO'd. But those are the exceptions. It's very few. We had the portion in Europe last year. and um... That's right. Because if they have a material effect on the index and the market, 
then the index provider will want to make sure that that's reflected in the index as quickly as possible. If the company is smaller and the effect is much less, then they'll take a much more cost-efficient way for investors to bring those companies into the index. And if we get a bit technical, what kind of criteria do actually the index providers then look at to uh, consider including a company? Well, they're, they're really looking at their sort of size, but their free float. If we think about it, free float is those shares which are publicly available. And most index providers will want to see that at least 25% of the shares are publicly available. They will also take into account whether the shares have voting rights. But essentially, what they're trying to do is they want to include as many of these companies as they can because they're trying to provide a view of that overall market. So they want to include as many companies as they can, but they want to ensure that there's enough liquidity and any investor can have an opportunity to influence the company itself. There is an impact of size, as you said, right? Because on the one hand, you want to include a wide array of the market, but at the same time, there's a few limitations to what investors want to have in their portfolio in terms of number of companies. So what does it mean in terms of size of companies that are included in the FTSE or Wilshire indices? Normally, there's a minimum size of something like $25 million that will be used as criteria. Outside of that, it will be deemed too small. But for, for companies to get into mid-cap indices, then very often you're talking billion dollars and above. And it depends on different markets, it will be a different size. In the US, that size criteria will be much higher. And it's simply because it's a bigger market with bigger companies. Exactly. But that billion dollar mark is something that stuck with me as well in, in Europe, that that's a good, uh, a good level. But uh, you need to be able to be stable at that level and not uh, just be there at IPO, but also be there six months after IPO. And in terms of time, how much time does it usually take for a company from the IPO to then actually become included in the index, given the time to review, the need to, to get liquidity, etc.? Normally, uh, the index providers will want to make sure that there is sufficient trading days to judge liquidity, uh, in other words, trading levels. So normally, they would want to see a minimum of 30 days so before a review period. So if you're a small cap company coming to the market, you want to check as to when the annual review, because often it's an annual review for small companies, when that annual review will take place. So in the UK, that's typically September. And therefore, really, you would want to list in the early summer to ensure that there is sufficient time for the index provider to check that there is enough liquidity for them to include you in that review. But if your timing is October, you've got to wait almost a whole year before you'd be considered. Is there any human touch to the process? Because we talked about the technical criteria, but uh, is there also sort of a committee reviewing all the additions or how does that work? Yeah, most of the index providers now use a committee and some outside market practitioners. The main purpose is to make sure that the index provider is applying the rules in a consistent way. But there are judgments, and it tends to be uh, around areas such as which industry sector company gets represented in, or whether there is a, a different approach 
in terms of voting rights or listing arrangements, the index providers will want to consider. These are sort of where there's something that's unique or different. Does that mean the it will create an issue for investors that the index provider should take into account? Otherwise, the index providers are trying to be as consistent as possible because that enables the, particularly the passive funds, but all the investors who are following the indices to be able to predict uh, with some certainty IPOs, how they will be treated as they, they come into the indices. In your book, you tell the very interesting story about the IPO of Glencore and uh, the IPO advisor is coming to discuss the index rules with you. So obviously, it was a big deal for that company to be included in uh, in FTSE. Is it often that the IPO advisors come to you to understand how they can achieve index inclusion? For the bigger companies, or if there is something that is unusual about a company, then the advisors will usually come and try and get clarification. Now, Glencore is a good example because Glencore was a private company owned by its staff and they were introducing a relatively small amount of the company to the market. So their free float was limited. So their free float may have met our rules, but we were were thinking that the staff that held the um, stock that those staff were being restricted from being able to sell, um, certainly uh, on day one. We were concerned is whether the stock would not have sufficient liquidity if we included it in the index, because the inclusion in the index means that those passive funds will have to invest in the company, and therefore they're almost forced buyers. So the index provider has this obligation to ensure that those buyers can actually make that acquisition, can become shareholders, and that that order flow is not going to create an artificial market. Oh, but it's true that we've seen for very low free float companies, sort of 5% or less, you can have some very strange effects, right? But there is a trend towards, you talked about 25% free float limits. There is a trend, I think, in the US, but also probably in Europe, towards lower free float IPOs, just because you want to make sure that there's actually enough demand. So that creates something of a tension. That was the case with Glencore as well. It does create, it does with Glencore. But the challenge for the index provider, again, is they want to capture these changes in the market. So, so where you've got sort of either new sectors starting to emerge or you've got large, interesting companies that will shape the markets going forward, the index providers want to include them. So they're often having to then deal with issues which are outside their rules or their rules would prohibit because the rules are, are really written on the past and past experience. So there is this question of how you evolve rules in a way that will allow new forms of companies that aren't listed before or have different structures to list on the market, whilst at the same time trying to ensure that the investors have the adequate protections that they that they desire. And, that, and that's the challenge. So the index provider it is not trying to be a regulator, but there is a question of quality and risk that they have to take into account. 
Oh, that's true. Uh, being on some of these index committees myself, we've had always have a lot of things to talk about. It's not like the index rules are, are set in stone. They evolve over time. But I mean, you had the issue of Glencore, but we also had a quite public discussion about the IPO of Snap in 2017, for example, that came out without any votes in public hands. Do you want to explain what happened there? Yeah, and with Snap, and actually in Lean and FTSE during that time, I mean, we consulted with our practitioner committees and the investors, and, and there was a very strong feeling that we should not include Snap as a company, as a constituent in the indices, because there were no voting rights for investors. So it represented a much higher risk because investors could not have any influence over the um, future strategy and direction of the company. So at that time with Snap, it was Snap was excluded from most indices. And it was only over time as Snap became accepted in the market that we then had the discussions and gradually over time, Snap has been included in many indices. But that's a case of, again, a company coming to market, challenging the status quo, and investors and the index providers having to find a way of finding a solution to that, but not necessarily immediately, over time. And very often, if these new forms of companies or voting right restrictions, then it's probably the right thing to do is to allow a period of time so that investors can either become comfortable and and you can include the stock in the index or the company itself changes. So you said that index providers are generally in favor of including most companies, right? You, because you want to have as wide an index as possible. And I guess on the on the exchange side, it's quite true as well. The exchange does want to allow more listings and even the regulators because in the end, there's actually a, a net benefit to both the company and society in a way to get more companies listed because you get more transparency, you get uh, access to wider sources of capital etc. Do you think it's important to evolve those listing rules as well? I mean, there's the debate in the UK right now to get more companies listed in the UK or in Europe. I think it is important to evolve listing rules. And in the UK, there used to be a sort of premium and a standard set of requirements. And initially, only premium listed companies were allowed into the indices and standard listed companies were excluded for a long time. And we also have the difficult issue is that the index providers have to provide a nationality for a company because investors, the country in which they um, designate a particular company is important for them. And that's normally related to the stock exchange where most trading happens, but not in all cases. And that's because the stock exchanges are competing for listings. And companies can often list on more than one exchange. And therefore, the index providers are having to provide a structure for global investors, are having to very often make judgment calls that are different to exchanges. But it is about how they're servicing investors, where the investors want consistency. They want as much continuity as is possible within a changing market. Because it's important how they value companies as to whether they're treated as a a US technology company or, say, a, a UK technology company. These things do matter to those investors. So the index provider, I think, will rely on the regulator and the exchange wherever they can 
but there are some areas where they have to make judgments that are independent of the regulators and the uh, exchanges. Otherwise, you would have companies represented in several different countries and you would have the investors looking at a benchmark and an index which double counts some stocks or omits others. So for these reasons, the index providers have to make judgments and decisions that the exchanges and regulators uh, do not have to make. Through your career, you've seen uh, a number of different stock exchanges and stock markets evolve and grow. And the story of FTSE has also been a bit the story of including stock exchanges one after the other and, and seeing them uh, grow over time. From your experience, what do you think is the key ingredients to a thriving capital market? I, th- I think it's very important that the stock exchanges and local governments continue to try and make listings in their markets attractive to global investors, because that is the key here. The companies in listing, that needs to be attractive to global investors. So we can think of you know risks involved and the infrastructure involved in the market, but we can also think of whether or not there's additional taxes that have an impact. Um, we can also think of the type of companies and sectors um, that are being attracted. So if I look at the UK, the UK stock market was very successful pre-2000. And it attracted a lot of the older style industries. So it was heavy in mining, oil, energy. And these sectors, of course, after 2000, have underperformed globally. So the UK market and its valuations are affected by that. So there is a case of governments, really, and exchanges being encouraged to think about how attractive they are to global investors. Because global investors you know, want to have as many opportunities as they can. They want to add more countries. Middle East is a fast-growing region today. But they will want to make sure that it's um, secure to invest in those countries. And they will want to make sure they can understand the growth potential of the companies and the industries which are developing in particular markets. And Saudi Arabia is a good example where the government is very actively pursuing a diversification away from energy and is creating exciting new industries in in that country and being listed on that stock market. And that makes that stock market more attractive to investors. As more investors are attractive, it means companies, more companies are then attracted to listing in the market itself. And it's interesting that Saudi Arabia actually ran a modernization program of the stock market, which was historically very closed before going on the modernization drive of the economy. So the stock market has really been following what, uh, what's been happening locally. And the stock market is an important part of a country's sort of economic strategy. It's a very important part because it helps raise capital for companies. And that creates employment and wealth in the country itself. So yeah, stock markets are an essential part of a country's economy. And it's important that governments, not just stock exchanges, have a plan and take responsibility for the development of the stock market. 
I want to touch a bit on ESG because all the major index providers have also become ESG data providers, which kind of fits because you you already cover all the listed companies, so you have the list and, and you have clients who want to build custom portfolios basically based on those indices, but taking into account some other criteria. Before it was just free float and uh, market capitalization. That was uh, how it was before. And then now you add a few extra dimensions, environmental, sustainability, social, the governance aspect of companies. At FTSE, I mean, you're actually the first index provider to launch ESG-focused indices. And I'm wondering what investors are asking you for today in terms of indices. ESG matters for investors because if we think about the future value of companies, the impact that companies have on the environment or their social policies or their governance practices, all of those issues either become a risk for an investor or make a company more attractive for an investor. So I, I think it was, you know, yes, I was one of the first, but um, I think the success is that more followed. And the first attempts at trying to create ways of defining ESG, environment, social and governance, was really aimed at companies because we were trying to provide a structure so that companies themselves could assess their own strategies in these areas and also their own impact. So they could determine whether it was important for them as a company to have good practices in the environment or they wanted to compete and have better social practices for the human capital they employed or human capital because the nature of the business represented a risk and they had to have policies to manage that. Mining is a good example there. So I think ESG has grown in importance and remains important. I think the trend now is really for investors as investors are trying to identify which ESG characteristics represent an investment risk that they can identify and has an impact on the valuation of a company, and which sort of ESG characteristics offer potential for creating value. And I think instead of using the same sort of structure that companies are using to assess their ESG, I think investors are beginning to think, what ESG factors do they need to focus on? And a good example is that climate change, I think all investors can see that the regulations that are happening in in climate change is affecting a number of companies, a number of sectors around the world. And therefore, they want to take that into account because you can see that clear trend. So across stock markets, the sort of carbon impact naturally is reducing as governments through policy are making that change. But for an investor, I can actually look at companies that I know are going to be targeted by this change and changes in regulation. And therefore, do I... Do I see some of these companies that are either behind the curve or facing this challenge? Are they currently fairly valued or are they undervalued or are they overvalued? And then I can use both the ESG consideration and my view on valuation to start to make a better investment decision. That side is what's evolving and evolving very quickly. But what I started with the sort of ESG sort of scoring systems and criteria 
that was really aimed at companies themselves and helping those companies understand how they could improve and then to tell that story to investors. Now we've got the investors who are really searching for how they build this into their investment programs to make better investment choices. And what information do the companies then actually need to disclose in order for you as an index provider to provide that information? Is it sort of everything related to emissions, etc.? Is that essential to get a score? Or I mean, that's part of the problem is that disclosure by a company is mixed. And disclosure on environment is actually pretty good. It, disclosure on social issues is very weak. Disclosure on governance is very good. Okay, So there are different disclosure levels, and, and that's important. But if we take the example you know, we've been talking about in terms of carbon, not enough companies are really disclosing their sort of carbon emissions and carbon impact. And they're actually either one scope, two scope, three, which, which provide for greater and greater disclosure. So it will happen, but the faster that companies can do this, the better it is for investors because they can make better investment decisions. This is also one of our challenges to companies that are listing is the fact that usually they, they're not ready to disclose yet because they haven't done the work internally. But the truth is, you do want to get that index inclusion. And as more and more investors use ESG or climate-focused indices, you actually need to have that information ready as soon as possible, or you're going to delay it even further. And then what the index providers are doing, they're becoming more sophisticated and they have sort of uh, data analysts where you, you can fill data gaps by comparing to peers and making judgments about um, you know, where a particular company is. And that analysis is of reasonable quality. It's not perfect, but it's of, of reasonable quality. Now, for a company that's IPO in, they can either just rely on the fact that an index provider will make that judgment. And if they're making that judgment, they'll always be conservative. So in other words, it'll mark the company down slightly, then, you know, it's in the interest of the company really to disclose and to, you know, get the benefits of disclosing the, the information that investors need and want. Any thoughts on how the ESC ratings environment will evolve over the next five years? I think it has to evolve to meet the needs of investors. So I, I think uh, that's a big change. I think it has to be much more sort of related to the impact that ESG criteria can have on valuations of companies, both in the short term and long term. And we need to be able to show that impact. At the moment, some of the uh, ESG criteria are, are simple scoring mechanisms and there isn't a direct relationship with the valuation of the company or the investment risk. And I think that's what has to happen. ESG has to change in that way. I think on our side, we're actually seeing something of a relationship between ESG and cost of capital in the sense that if you are a well-viewed ESG-positive company, if you need to raise money, I mean, that's what the stock market is for, right? If you need to raise money, there's actually more investors who will be waiting to participate and to, to accompany you. So naturally, your cost of capital is slightly less versus if you don't disclose anything, you know, non-transparent, then there's a lot of investors who just won't participate and that makes it harder. 
And look, if we analyze that a bit more, we'll find that, you know, if you're in the bottom 25% in terms of ESG, whether that's disclosure or performance or scoring mechanism, it is harder for you with investors to raise that capital and it will be more expensive. If you're in that higher range, I'm not sure the very best have cheaper access to capital. But certainly, if you're in that sort of bottom 25%, you will find it more expensive. Any fun facts you'd like to share with us from your experience? Well, I'll stay on the theme of ESG. I mean, because when I first announced FTSE for Good, one of the first uh, ESG indices, we set up a, a group of experts and we defined the criteria for ESG and we applied it to the FTSE 100, thinking that um, we would have a good selection of companies. But when we did the first analysis, only two of the top 10 FTSE 100 companies met the criteria. And it took a year after announcing the criteria to then be able to explain it enough to companies so that uh, we could launch an index because we didn't actually have enough constituents to launch an index. Um, But when we did launch a year later after the announcement, eight of the top 10 companies met the criteria. So they changed policies. And the two that didn't meet the criteria did blame it on us, the index provider. But within a year, those two also met the criteria. So in that way, I think LM by showing the influence of the index providers can be very significant. Oh, indeed. I think it's uh, it's huge in <laughs> the listed market. Thank you very much, Mark. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for listening to IPO Stories. In future episodes, we will host CEOs, CFOs, advisors, and other participants in the IPO process to learn from their experience, like from Mark today. If you like the show, please follow us on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and share the show with people around you. If you have questions about the IPO process that you'd like us to address with future guests, please get in touch at contact at ipostories.com and follow our LinkedIn account, Amundsen Investment Management.